You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And from a closet during a shutdown of the universe, this is this is how we're talking to each other This for this episode, Neil. And this is our 100th episode, a very auspicious episode. It's uh, a marvelous occasion. I just want to be very clear, I'm not in a closet with Catherine. No, no. That would be infringing physical distancing rules, I think, as we're now calling it. I am physically distant from Catherine, but Catherine is in a closet and I can see the coats hanging on her head, which is uh, a good look, actually. Um, 100th episode. That is exciting. Hey, but I want to, is it my 100th episode? I think it's just your 100th episode. I think it's just my 100th episode, Neil. I'm sorry. I think so. you're 100. I think I'm a very healthy 58 or something like that. I think you're at, I think, I believe you actually you're at 59. Wow, that was <laughs> a great guess. Look at me and my capability and estimation. <laughs> very good. Yeah, I guess the the first question that I I want to ask you really is how are you? Is everything okay where you are? How are things going? Before we talk about what we usually talk about, let's check in with each other as people. Yeah, what crazy times. So things are fine, but obviously not fine um in the UK at the moment and you know, I think it's going to be something that plays out over a long period of time. But um, my wife's Italian. Things are, are, are bad in Italy. Um, and they're a bit further down this road than we are. So they could, of course, become quite bad here. And I think there's a lot of apprehension about that. But I also noticed that different groups seem to have different different levels of concern about this. And I don't fully understand those different levels of concern. But you certainly see there's certain people out in the street sort of like touching each other. And then the rest of us going, ah, run. Or giving them, no, what we do is we give them dirty looks because we're in Britain and that's how we enforce uh, social distancing, which as I was saying, I think perhaps physical distancing is the right thing because we need to be social. We uh, dole out dirty looks. That seems to be how we're dealing with coronavirus, which I'm not sure is a sufficient response, but uh, I, I don't I don't suppose it surprised me, but you sort of notice how widespread uh, a lack of understanding of exponentials say is you know which i think is natural someone was uh i watched a video where an italian guy who um his name forgets me name forgets me you know i forget his name actually in this case i've forgotten how to speak so an italian guy i think it was delana is uh, his name was talking about how difficult it is to express an exponential in normal terms that it's a concept um that is difficult for our brains to handle. And I think perhaps many of us in machine learning are much more used to thinking about it and got quite used to it. But I was really reflecting on that and thinking, yeah, it is hard. And I think the difficulty of handling exponentials combined with uncertainty around what's going on is, is you know, really at the heart of the challenges I think we're facing for this epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. Is there been any interesting work by anyone that you've seen about predicting the impact or well the i think the modeling work is 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 very interesting and i would not want to be doing it i was i mean i would kind of want to be but i don't envy those that are having to do it because i work in gaussian processes occasionally i work with epidemiologists and i was organizing a conference in sheffield and i remember one of the speakers asked because we were recording everything for the camera to be switched off for a period because they were about to present some speculative results on malaria, I think, in East Africa. And they didn't want those results to be broadcast until they confirmed their modeling 
because the implications for those people who are funding, say, mosquito nets and other interventions are quite serious. So they didn't want misinformation to get out there. And I think that this is a really interesting challenge for the machine learning community where our instinct is to sort of share things very widely quite early. And, and that's a good instinct. But there's this difficulty that when you are sharing a model, you are sharing a conclusion, people are reading and interpreting this. And of course, that is going on at quite a widespread level. So I think it's a very interesting area around open science. Like, first of all, you you sort of want to understand the models people are using and how they're doing things. But secondly, you don't want people to get the wrong impression by misusing a model. Models only exist with the context. And I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of modeling is, is you have to deeply understand the limitations. So, so tools, I actually, Matthew House from University of Manchester shared a, a, a tool that was just simulating effects of uh, changing R, where R is the number of expected number of people you expect to transmit the disease to. And it was a differential equation model. And he shared it on Python. It's quite a simple model. And actually, the sort of conclusions you could draw from playing with that are similar to there was a very, if people are interested in this for the UK and the US, the Imperial College here has released a model that is being widely looked at and and has in theory changed the strategic approach of the UK government. But I'm really uncertain about whether that's true or not. It's whether it changed their approach or whether the the circumstances change their approach. It's so hard to know. So people are calling clearly for openness. And sort of part of me is in favor of that. But part of me then understands that some of these models need to be used within a certain context. And I think the thing that never fails to impress me is how certain so many people are about what the right thing to do is or what the right conclusion is. I, I just can't be certain. I, I feel that you look at these things and the decisions we're making, uh, they're going to have serious downstream consequences uh, you know, for a long time from now, not just in the here and now over the next months, but they have very serious downstream consequences, but riddled with uncertainty because there are major events like, oh, it turns out that some drug you know, cures it straight away, just utterly changes thinking. Or it turns out that, you know, well, vaccines, I think the best bet is 18 months. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And I almost feel it's dangerous even, you know, talking about it in some sense is also hard because if you talk about it, then you're at risk of spreading your own misunderstandings or it, it, it really does make me happy that we have some understanding of uncertainty, a lot of us in the community, because you sort of study that. And uh, it's always interesting to me to what extent you can try and deploy that in your own decision making. People, you know, are have, being faced with pretty serious questions, like they may have uh, an elderly relative with conditions who lives some distance away from them. And they've got to make a decision about do they visit or not, because they're potentially endangering that relative by visiting, by increased risk of transmission, but simultaneously by being isolated themselves and that relative being isolated at a time when in some sense you kind of want to be close to family. That's not really a trade-off. And I think that, you know, in, in machine learning and AI, we write all these, oh, what's the objective function? Oh, well, okay, what's the cost for that? You know, it doesn't really work. You know, and actually, when, even when you look at these models, they are trying to look at things like so the big trade-off i think in these models is sort of the 
threat to health in the short term versus the long-term economic damage by being shut down. And some people seem to claim that that's no trade-off, that you have to save as many lives now as possible. And other people claim, well, actually, you have to think long-term about downstream effects. And I think you can make arguments both ways. So I don't think there's any pure ethical correctness here. But I think uh, what actually has happened is the world seems to have gone for the latter one. And you can't do the former on your own because downstream economic consequences will happen at a worldwide scale. So I think that that basically we've the default position has ended up from a somehow game theoretic way that we attempt to minimize near-term impact. And that's certainly not a wrong decision as far as we know now, but you know, events may prove things to take a different turn. Very challenging. I think what's also very, very interesting and has a big effect on the way the community will end up looking at things in the future is the difference with the capabilities you get in countries like China, where there's much more. And actually, Israel, my understanding is, I don't know the details, you also you have these security databases in Israel and in China. You have much more fine-grained data collecting capabilities, which are the things that we all worry about. And it turns out in these situations, they may be quite an important tool it's actually always interested me that tension between how do you maintain the the liberty we we expect from not having our data overseen but also have these capabilities like like why can't we do more sort of self reporting and sharing of information about when we have illnesses now there's many many reasons i'm not going to be the one to say oh we're all idiots well there's there's reasons for that it's complex to do such systems, but you know, you, you would like to have such systems, such like apps that could collect widespread data very quickly that, that we might be prepared to suspend some of our sort of data freedoms in circumstances like this. But right at this moment, we don't really even have that choice, right? Or, or that capability. And I think that that's a interesting context for how we will think about some of these questions in the future. That I think that there's been this and I'm, I'm not saying, you know, there's, there's certainly challenges with the approach Chinese society has, but I think that this is also highlighting that there are challenges to the approaches that uh, we have in some Western societies because they don't necessarily balance to the same degree the needs of society versus the needs of individual. And again, I would say I'm not claiming either thing is right here. I think that these are different decisions and you can take valid positions on them. But I think that that will have downstream consequences on data and the community. And I think we should be preparing for that. And I think we need to urgently get to the point where we're providing solutions. Because you could argue that it's a failure of not the academic side alone of machine learning, but the tech and academic side that we haven't been able to more rapidly provide solutions that are immediately helpful. I mean, I don't want to diminish the work people are doing. It's great when you sort of see people getting hands to the pumps. But I think we could reflect on ourselves as a community and say, well, what could we have done better? I mean, there's not an enormous amount we can do in the immediate instant because events are evolving so fast but and people are doing what they can. But what could we have done better in the past to enable us to combat such outbreaks without limiting our freedoms at this point. And, and those are the actions we should be taking in the future, because whatever we expect from the world in the future, being able to coordinate as and when is needed to deal with global threats. And of course, the long standing one is climate change. So there's an urgency to coronavirus, 
it, it's always hard to perhaps see and talk about positives, but you know there is the potential that that such a realization that we need to be able to globally coordinate to deal with such threats might might change our attitude to climate change. It might diffuse the type of tensions we have uh, across the world around uh, ground globalization at the moment in some way. It might make them worse. It's very difficult to say, but it, it's very clear. I think my personal perspective is even if tomorrow there's a cure and everyone's all right, the world will have changed the way that it self-perceives. And the longer this goes on, the greater that change in self-perception will be, I think. So you think that we're going to see more tactical urgency around this conversation about how we can actually make our information accessible in a way that we're comfortable with that helps to move these existential problems forward? I hope so, because it's a passion for mine, and I should, so I should declare that. So obviously, I'm thinking more about the ways in which it affects my interests, but I think we moved too slowly on that. And my interest was always derived by health, less pandemic challenges, but more regular sort of diseases and sharing information about how we're responding. I don't know. I think that you you, you can look at these situations and you can kind of despair at all the damage it's going to do and the very real suffering uh, that people will face. But you, I think, as a scientific community, somewhat insulated in the immediate term from the direct outputs, relatively speaking, given that many of us can work from home, many of us not being paid salaries that are dependent on feet walking through the door today, many of us are not paid by events that are now being cancelled and the money for that is disappearing. We're in somewhat of a lucky position, but notice the extent to which the decision-making that we have today is being driven by science and technology, not always directly our science and technology in terms of many of these people are biologists, capabilities developed for Ebola, for vaccine creation, modeling capabilities developed on the back of the Ebola crisis. Scientific groundwork that was done in the years leading up to this. And I think that our position of privilege, sure, where we can help, we should dive in and help. But it's not always easy to see how to help right at the moment or where to help. And indeed, too many offers of help can sometimes overwhelm an ecosystem anyway. Uh, I, I spoke very early to colleagues asking if they wanted help. And it was kind of clear that the communication overhead, well, that was the impression I gained. The communication overhead of bringing on a new team, e even if that was, which is classic, well-known in sort of software engineering, and I think true of many areas, was going to be larger than just them trying to get on with the job themselves. But I think that there has to be an onus on us to focus on strategic directions that mean the next time this happens or something like this happens, we have the information infrastructure to respond more rapidly because the, it's a crisis of information. I mean, in terms of if we knew where the cases were, if we were able to track where the cases were, then we would be able to do more. And of course, there's challenges around getting test kits out, but there are other ways of helping which we perhaps can't deploy. So, you know, examples would be 
you know, in I think China, there's a lot of temperature monitoring going on. And I'm not sure to what extent that helps, but we can't really even, it seems to me, we're not currently in a position in the UK, I don't know about the US, to deploy such systems. I can imagine them being deployed, but I can imagine it would take quite a big team and and an existing information infrastructure that may have to be owned by one of the larger tech companies. That kind of isn't acceptable. I mean, that's somehow a failing on not just the machine learning communities, but the wider tech community's behalf that we can't deliver on that. And we know why, you know, like we can come up with our excuses. We can explain what the challenges are. We can do that, or we can just get on and and try and solve these types of problems. And I hope that the scale of challenges we take on as a community in the future will be the nature of challenges that can help address these things and, and think at that scale. And I know we've got work on, we're doing climate change and we're doing all this sort of thing. And I'm sure people have done stuff that is helping today, but, but you know, just an increase in the percentage of the work we're putting out that, that helps that and perhaps less work that shaves off 1% from <laughs> some uh, benchmark. Well, and actually, you know, I shouldn't really complain about that because it's, it's, it's high profile work and I don't think it's such a large percentage of work in the community that's a problem. It's, I think it's, it's actually, I don't want to point the fingers in that way. Yeah. So I think that the, we're clearly at a really difficult place, you know, perhaps by the time talking machines goes out, we'll be done and be all fixed, but I doubt it. And I think, you know, if you look at the Imperial study, you're sort of saying in the worst case, we potentially have, we're in for the long haul in terms of these containments. And as I say, you know, the people, once again, who get affected most by this are the people at the margins, the people who have less in reserve and who are more reliant on the day-to-day work to sort of keep them employed. You know, and as uh, it's nice for us that we're insulated from that, but I think that there's you have to, there's a responsibility as well to use your position to try and fix that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. What was the the Imperial College study? Uh, That is the COVID team at Imperial College. And it's thought to have had a significant, I'm really curious. I mean, of course, you'd just love to know the nature of the conversations that are going on with these senior scientific experts. Uh, I was talking with a colleague today who was saying how tired they all look, which is of course a worry as well, because you want them not tired. Uh, but you know it, it's so difficult working under these deadlines. It was the it's the Imperial College COVID nineteen group. It's uh, Neil Ferguson is leading it, but it's a large team and uh, it includes epidemic models that have been in long term development. But I think they've been fed with bas- the best parameter estimates we can get from China, and of course. Uh, you know, we're extremely fortunate in some sense that we have those parameter estimates from China. China has taken a sort of big hit for the world. And I mean, I think has shown more capability in its rapid response, but really has borne the brunt of estimating these things. If we didn't have those parameter things, you know, we really would be, I think, flying a bit blind. Absolutely. What What's going to be the impact of being able to actually share this kind of information across research teams? Like, how how is our ability to collaborate going to be tested? So I, I think those models are quite easy to share and discuss across teams. And I think that the one challenge, and, and 
maybe this is my concern about the pure idea of open science. The model is the model and how it's being presented and its limitations are important in the context of sharing of the model. No, no model is correct and some models are less correct than others. So I couldn't help saying that. The, the point about that George Box quote, misquote I've just made is, which he also says in the same paper, is what is more important is how the model is wrong. One of the phenomena we've seen is people highlighting challenges in models and perhaps then saying, oh, look, so this is this is broken. I think it's the, I was reading a friend of mine's column in the Times, Matthew Syed, where he was talking about this challenge and he was talking also about, I think, Isaiah Berlin's essay, The, Eight, the Hedgehog and the Fox, where the hedgehog has sort of has one big idea and is driving forward with that. And the fox considers lots of different things. And I, in these situations, you know, I think of the hedgehog as here's my model. And the fox has got to be there, though, as well, sort of at the sidelines saying what the limitations of the model are. Of course, we can do some sort of uncertainty analysis, but not even, you know, you can sort of look at the sensitivity to the inputs. But, but there's the factors that the model doesn't even take into account. And, and those involve things like what the probability of getting a vaccine is and what the probability because it's so difficult to account for because I think perhaps more interesting although it's less direct in our, in our area is the ability of labs to share information around the sequencing and the sort of computational biology that can go forward with that and the speed with which people can develop drugs to attach different targets I mean the amount we know about this virus I mean that there's I've read two very good articles. One was in The Economist and one was in this week's Sunday Times, sort of last Sunday. Uh, very good journalism. And, and that's another thing I should say. You, you really, really start to be grateful for great journalism in these times. So not the sort of like, oh, here's something I read on Twitter about the virus. You know, it's like proper, well-researched work that presents in a clear way our best understanding of how the virus operates, what its weak points are, and what approaches we have for attacking those weak points. And that type of sharing of knowledge is going on at the more technical level between computational biology labs and those attempting to develop vaccines or those attempting, for example, one of the conclusions, I can't remember if it was from the Sunday Times article or the Economist article, is that some of the, the HIV drugs target similar areas so those those can be trialed quite quickly it's not known whether they'll have an effect but you know there's such uncertainty i mean the fact that we can potentially sequence i mean potentially i'm sure we are sequencing the virus in many different places and understanding how it's tending to evolve and building phylogenetic trees which is another area where machine learning interfaces with computational biology incredibly useful i suspect listeners have developed some other tools. So, you know, the, the bit where I was saying we need to do more of this, but definitely in computational biology, listeners who listen to Talking Machines will have been people that are developing tools that are being deployed to do that type of analysis sort of as we speak. All that type of sharing is actually in a very good shape, like around the computational biology community. It's much more the sort of what I call the big data paradox, which is this challenge of as we sort of we survey the population more, we seem to understand less. I mean, particularly around when you look at the testing regimes, it's not clear to me to what extent we've managed to do some randomized control or randomized testing in 
in these cases in order to get a true assessment at the level to which the virus has spread. So it seems to be, I mean, in the UK, they're saying, well, the numbers will be at least 10 times higher and we're only testing people who turn up in hospital. So it's like, you're not really testing to quantify. I mean, I almost think we should not be seeing the graphs that show the increasing number of cases because all you're seeing is what the number of tests that country has is capable of deploying or the number of hospital admissions or something like that. So you see these little kinks in those graphs and you think, well, actually, these kinks are meaningless, but they, they probably... So, so there's another form of data sharing, which if you don't understand what you're seeing... I mean, if you look at the South Korean data where they've done extensive testing, uh, the cases are sort of leveling off and there's a very smooth curve. And the number of deaths in South Korea is, I think similar to the current number of deaths in France, yet the number of confirmed cases in France is way lower. So you sort of get a sense that the South Korea has actually, with its extensive program of testing, has has contained the outbreak and has flattened out. Whereas France, which is currently has less confirmed cases, but similar order of magnitude, similar number of deaths, is currently you know, on, on quite a steep curve. So, so a lot of this data, in some sense, is quite misleading. And I mean, even even the conclusions I'm drawing now, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert. You know, this is just, this is hearsay. I'm just talking hearsay. So I'm just doing the same, same thing, right? So all of this has to be really qualified. It's difficult to qualify the tweets, which are sort of saying one thing or another about what we should be doing. If, if traumatic, but also, you know, fascinating period and fascinating challenges, um, which I think we really need to take very seriously because they're going to have, you know, they are having dramatic consequences for people. And maybe that will be what pulls the community out of ad clicking <laughs> and whatever else we're doing. Yeah, this this impact where people are seeing more directly on themselves, a dramatic result, right, in terms of a problem that feels that feels existential, but also feels um, perhaps actionable or understandable through these particular tools, the, the importance of this kind of, of doing this kind of work on a specific kind of problem will be clearer to the larger population. I don't know. Yeah. And I think a, a sort of deeper understanding of the importance of public health and safety nets and the fragility of our current setup. So we've got it's wonderful that we can get, you know, iPhones very cheaply, but in some sense, there's, there's sort of a cost to this, and the cost is the fragility of the system. I mean, this is what uh, Nassim Taleb is saying quite forcefully. I mean, if, if you don't want to be offended, don't read his tweets. But, you know, and he's someone who is very, has spoken regularly and often about this. I mean, strongly emphasize the challenges of these fragile systems. Um, it's been very critical of all sorts of different people. But, you know, he, he's sort of been consistent about that point of view. Uh, and uh, the great, the best quote uh, I've seen about him, and, and he put it on the back of his book, was um, the problem with Taleb isn't that he's an asshole. He is an asshole. The problem with Taleb is that he's right. And in this case, and I'm worried about a world where he keeps being right, because it'd be some kind of, Messiah, but in this case, he's I think broadly proven to be correct about some of these things. Although I'm not 100% convinced that the interventions he sees are going to be the right ones, he, he is of course very convinced. But and that's one of the things I find fascinating about this space in general is people who have quite deep understandings of probability can be so certain that they're right about stuff. And and this is an ongoing phenomenon to me. Like and I 
partially I admire it, but I also fear it because the thing I learned from probability, I mean, it's known as Cromwell's maxim. Dennis Lindley called it that. The point about it is Cromwell didn't understand Bayesian inference. Bayes wasn't even alive yet. But the the point from Lindley is that you should never eliminate something unless it's a logical impossibility. So always have prior probability over all events. And actually, Taleb is, is kind of quite interesting on that because he's he's sort of the ultimate fox. It's almost like everyone's relying on their model. That's that the role he's played is to sort of denounce the model and sort of promote ideas around skepticism of this thing, which is great. But it's interesting that he's so convinced of his correctness that uh, he, he calls all sorts of people different things on Twitter. And I think that that's a very common, that's an, another common phenomenon I, I see in this crisis is that uh, people become so convinced of their correctness, even though they, they can't have all the facts because no one has all the facts. Of course, we can all call out what we're worried about. And, and, and that's another important thing. What you're also seeing is the extent to which, certainly in the UK, decisions are being driven by science or the best science we think we have. And that's a sort of interesting situation because there's been this whole sort of pushing aside of experts, but it's also, it's somehow anti-democracy as well. It's a, I don't know, what would it be? Would it be a bureaucracy? Bureaucrats or... Italy does it every so often. Italy gets into crisis and they put all, appoint experts in the government. They did it in the financial crisis. They got rid of Berlusconi and they put put in uh, no technocracy. Technocracy, bureaucracy is different, isn't it? That's when we have to fill in lots of forms to do expenses. Technocracy, but there's something dangerous about a technocracy as well. So in some sense, I, I don't know. Voices like Talabs, I think, are important in keeping the technocracy honest. But it, but it's not. That useful for all of us to be doing it? I don't know. I'm totally confused about what the right thing to do is, as as you can probably tell. Hmm. So hopefully this will improve the perhaps reset our barometers on what what kind of problems are important and what impact can be had on them. Help to clarify information sharing and how important that is and, and specific understanding, clarity of understanding of our pools of data and where that's coming from. But I guess we'll and just... And the integratedness of society. Absolutely. That's, that's, I think that's key as well. Yes, hopefully. Well, we will have a link to the report from Professor Neil Ferguson's group about the work that they've been doing on this issue. That's right. The COVID-19 group in the Imperial College. Yeah. On our website, thetalkingmachines.com. That is it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.